the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, welcome back. As we head into Hour 3, we are delighted to do so, as we do almost every Monday, with the great Brandon J. Weikert. He is the author of several books, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, also The Shadow War, Ron's Quest for Supremacy, and Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life. He is a uh, contributor to many outlets, but uh, senior editor over at 1945.com, where he uh, publishes a about an essay an hour, by my count. <laughs> 1945.com. Brandon, how are you, brother? Welcome back. Well, I am doing very well. Uh, I will admit that I occasionally get tired. So today is one of my one of my slower days of output, but I'm still producing. I'm, I'm currently working on a on a big deep dive on can or will America protect Taiwan? Oh, really? Uh, I have been talking about nothing yes. but this with friends for yes. the last exact week. Yes. Uh, you yes. want to do some of that? You want to talk out, think yeah, out loud with me on it? Finish, it'll probably help me finish the article. Okay, so yeah. good. Yeah. Good. So here's here's let me set it up this way and you take it anywhere any way you want. Can I set it up the way I've been Please. doing it with my friends? Um, it seems to me that the modern conservative movement for decades was if nothing supportive of Taiwan and opposed to the PRC, the communist uh, Chinese government. And, I mean, so much so that William Buckley even endorsed John Ashbrook for president over and against Richard Nixon in 1972 on this issue. And as of late, I hear rumblings, not left and right, but right, rumblings right, saying we can't defend Taiwan. And sometimes I hear we shan't defend Taiwan. Um, let me lay that as the groundwork. You take it any way you want. Well, what I will say is we should defend Taiwan as long as Taiwan is going to defend itself. Um, now, the issue of, can, you know, can't we? Um, that's more of a technical or logistical question in my book. Um, and that is a big concern on my part. Uh, uh, you know, do we have the capabilities any longer to achieve that kind of mission. The Pentagon says yes, um, but if you look at the honest-to-God assessment, uh, we've really, really gutted our industrial base uh, for 40 years, giving most of our capabilities to China, of all places, through deindustrialization, uh, to the point that we are now very vulnerable, uh, and we've also blown through so much of our already limited uh, heavy weapons supplies in Ukraine uh, that, you know, even if we want to, I'm not sure if we can defend Taiwan. But to answer the big question, should we? Yes, I think we absolutely should. And I think we should be planning for that. And I think we should be moving heaven and earth in terms of our industrial capacity to be able to meet whatever obligations we have with Taiwan, with the caveat being, so long as Taiwan is willing and able to defend itself, this can't just be an American, you know, American mission. It has to be a Taiwanese first mission 
and we'll come in and we'll back them up with any means that we can. Um, but the question is the means, and that's where some of the, I think, the disagreement comes. But you're right about one thing. There is a very powerful now, and they're now also, by the way, getting involved with DeSantis. Yeah. There is a very powerful element on the right yeah. that is inherently and explicitly not just anti-war, but they're anti-power projection, U.S. power projection. And I can't quite fathom why, other than they think that the U.S. is, is being led badly, and it is. And therefore, in order to defeat the domestic political foes here on, you know, here in America, they have to always side automatically against whatever those political foes may be saying. Um, and to a degree, I understand that. But, um, you know, on the case of Taiwan, it is against America's short term and long term interests for us to let that nation fall to China. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit uh, about the moral implications of, of let's assume for the moment that we can arguendo that we can help defend Taiwan. And uh, obviously I say help because I'm adopting your position that they have to be willing to do it, too. Right. It seems to me that there are two reasons, uh, one moral and one economic. The moral one is geostrategic. Um I don't know why people think the domino theory is false or has been disproven. I don't think it has. If not Taiwan, who? Question one. And then if we're not going to defend Taiwan, who would we – why would we ever defend anyone? Why would any ally ever believe in us again? Uh, But on the economic front, uh, the semiconductor industry alone – uh, would I, I mean, I don't know what the analogy would be to have the Communist Chinese Party stop it or take it over if they invade Taiwan. The, Taiwan supplies the lion's share, nearly the lion's share of semiconductors to the United States. I, I, there's been talk that if China were to take Taiwan, the Samson option would be the most the most ideal. That is to say, to destroy the semiconductor plants rather than have China take them over. But I don't know that Americans are willing and ready to know what that world looks like unless we can produce them here, which we're not quite at the point of being able to do yet. So I think that there's two two issues outside of just the ability to do it that mandate that we do it. You tell me. Uh, well, yes. The, the problem is, is that many of the people, and I'm not going to name names because I agree with them on a lot of things, but many of the people who are pro-defending Taiwan, of which I'm one, um, I think they go too far when they jump into that Samsonite option that you're referring to. Yeah. We talked about this a little bit last yeah, week, yeah. Um, uh, which basically says, if it looks like China's going to take Taiwan, we're just going to blow up the TSMC semiconductor production facility on the island, and we're just going to bring the temple down on our head. Right. Um, I don't think that's an option. And I think that the people who are saying that um, need to, to very seriously reconsider what they're saying, because the fact of the matter is the U.S. cannot produce the chips on Moss uh, that TSMC and Samsung and a handful of other international companies can. And the reason is because basically from the 1980s onward, companies like Intel sold off that capacity to TSMC, to Samsung, and now those capabilities are found almost exclusively in terms of scalability 
they're found almost exclusively in places like Taiwan. The Taiwan factory produces, I think, like 80 or 90 yeah. percent of the world's semiconductor. Yeah, the near lion's so, share, yeah. yeah. So when, when people do say, hey, you know, hey, China, if you do this, we're just going to blow up the plant. I don't even know if China really believes that. And, and I think that's the big issue here also is we're talking about deterrence and sort of this mutual assured destruction idea, which is that, you know, sort of like with the Soviets, we used to tell them, hey, if you nuke us, we're just going to nuke you right back and nobody's going to win. Well, we know from the Team B exercises in the 70s that the Soviets didn't really believe that, by the way. Yeah. And they built capabilities to basically fight and win a nuclear war against the United States, irrespective of what we were going to do to them. Right. That's point one. Right. And related to that point, I say point two is China knows that the United States is in many ways even more reliant on those chips than they are. Right. And they know that unlike in China, where they are actually ramping up those those productive capabilities, they're not there yet, but they're moving in the right direction. The United States is not even standing up any of its own indigenous capabilities so that if they did have to blow up that plant, it would be the United States left holding the bag. Right. It would be the, the U.S. economy and the U.S. society that would literally ground to a halt. And so in my opinion, I think that's beyond insane to even threaten that okay. because, A, we can't survive in a world where we don't have those capabilities. Uh, it would be and like an EMP attack, effectively. It really on would. Ourselves, yeah, on yeah, ourselves. Yeah. And B, and B, if the Chinese don't believe it, and I don't think they do, then what's going to, that's just going to make us look even worse. Right, right. You know, right. what we should be doing is what Trump was saying to do in 2017, Seth, which is to onshore, bring yep. as many of these capabilities home as possible. Yep. And that's why when Democrats like Representative Seth Bolton are the ones talking about, well, we'll just, we're going to stand by Taiwan so much that we'll blow up that plant. Well, where was Seth Moulton and the yep. Democrats five years ago when Trump was saying we can avoid all of this right. if we bring these capabilities home? Right. They were fighting him is what they were doing. Right. Let me do this, Brandon. Let me take the commercial break and come back on the uh, the moral issue and the domino theory issue. I mean, the sure. issue of if not Taiwan, then who would we ever defend ever? And maybe that's a part of the thinking on the right, um, this element of the right that you and I are talking about. You know, unless it's a direct attack on the United States, we have no business going to the aid of another country, uh, despite something called the Taiwan Relations Act, which passed the Senate with 96 votes. Uh, we'll talk about that more with Brandon Weikert when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. Follow him on Twitter, very active and smart Twitter feed, we the Brandon or at we the Brandon. Brandon, uh, elements in our movement on our side uh, beginning to say that Taiwan is not in the defense of Taiwan is not of, of, of U.S. interest is not in the U.S.'s interest. My my point of view is, you know, given my gosh, given all the all the ink spilt on on things to defend Taiwan and to marginalize the PRC in favor of the ROC since about 1971 forward, 1970 forward, perhaps. Um, where where does this idea and notion come from? A B, if not Taiwan, ever anyone. Um, Without a direct right. walk, walk me through this. The abandonment of Taiwan 
was the cause of huge consternation against Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger by our And movement. Jimmy Carter. And, of course, Jimmy Carter later. I mean, Barry Goldwater ushered in. I mean, you don't get really more modern conservative movement than Barry Goldwater and Bill Buckley. Bill Buckley endorses Ashbrook against Nixon on this issue in 72. Goldwater ushers in the Taiwan Relations Act of 1979. It's pretty darn clear what it says. Uh, there's, there's really no hemming and hawing about it. Uh, to maintain the capacity of the U.S. to resist any resort to force or other forms of coercion that would jeopardize the security or social or economic system of the people of Taiwan. Uh, how, yeah. how we can say this isn't in our interest, I don't get. Well, and I, I think the problem is in terms of our movement, um, the people in ascendance, the sort of the new paleocons, yeah, yeah. Um, they, they are inherently on the rise and they are the ones dictating the course of things now. And they are going to always be opposed to any conflict or any threat of conflict. Um, and, uh, the, you know, it doesn't really matter at this point who's president, because I don't think the United States political class will or the, the elected leaders will really be OK with with supporting Taiwan's uh, independence or protecting their sovereignty would be a better way of looking at it. Um, and uh, in terms of, you know, if not Taiwan, then who? I think the answer is pretty obvious. It's, it's nobody. They're not okay. going to allow you, you it. It'll be nobody. Yeah. It, 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 nobody. I mean, it, it, and it could even be, I mean, look at what's going on uh, in Brazil. Look at what's going on in Colombia. Look at what's going on in Latin America. I don't see the paleocons too upset about any of that. They don't care. Their, their only answer is, well, we'll just build a wall at the border. Well, that's part of the equation, yeah. But you do need to care about these areas. You, you don't always have to risk going to war, but you should be involved on some level uh, to counter the influence of rivals. Uh, in the case of Taiwan, if we lose Taiwan, it's a very set aside moral issues. I don't really talk about those anymore. I, you know, I really, I really <laughs> I know fixate. What you mean. I know what you mean. <laughs> I fixate. I fixate on the geopolitical. Okay. I fixate on the really kind of the the material things here. The material thing here is very simple. Um, most of America's trade and most of our interests are to the West Coast. They are to the Pacific, and we are a Pacific power. And that has been how it has been since the 19th century. That has been a consistent theme of U.S. foreign policy. We've always, uh, even when we said we're prioritizing Europe, we've really always, our actions have prioritized China specifically, but Asia more generally. And therefore, uh, if we lose Taiwan, what's going to happen is the Chinese are going to get what's known as that first island chain. From Taiwan, they can then, and they will, threaten Japan. They will then get Japan to kick out our air bases and our facilities in Japan so as to neutralize America's ability to project power into China and into Asia proper. Then they will move from that first island chain to the second island chain. They're already doing things in that second island chain by having Taiwan as their unsinkable aircraft carrier. That's a permanent power projection spot. Then from the second island chain, they'll then be right up against the Pearl Harbor in uh, uh, the third island chain. Interestingly, in 2008, the head of China's Navy met with our head of the Navy in Hawaii and suggested quite seriously, hey, uh, why don't we make a deal, America? Uh, China takes everything to the uh, west of Pearl Harbor and America gets everything to the east. And, of course, we laughed them out of the room, but the Chinese were not laughing. They were serious. Yeah. So this has always been part of the plan, and they need Taiwan to accomplish those ambitions. And once China has power projection capabilities where they can project power into Latin America and into North America from that, that third island chain. Do you really think we're going to be safe? 
Do you really think that we're going to be the, the number one power anymore? The answer is no. And so by preventing China from taking fully the first island chain for as long as possible, we are preventing them from ultimately being a true strategic rival to the United States in our own hemisphere. So it's in our interest to stop them from taking Taiwan. The, um, the recrudescent paleoconservative viewpoint that takes us back to a position of extreme isolationism has an end point to it, Brandon, that I'm not sure is well thought through by those who favor that position. And that end point is if enough of the world becomes under, comes under the influence of Maoism, if enough of the world does, not only will we be isolated, uh, we will be isolated into, uh, in, in, into non-existence. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it's good for the world that we have allies, and it's good for the world that we don't have communism. It is bad for the world that communism is growing. And I take the point, too, that there is a renewed attractiveness to it here in America. So, again, like in the 20s or 30s, there seems to be this odd alliance between the leftist Marxists and the rightist isolationists. Yes. Yes. And I think it's important to note that um, if we are totally surrounded by a Chinese imperium, um, you think it's bad now with the level of influence that they have over our political elite and over our economy. Just wait until we have nowhere else to turn to. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, they will be it will be open season on America from within our own borders because then we will be totally surrounded by a China that finds the idea of representative democracy uh, an inherent existential threat, and they will do whatever it takes to break us. And so, uh, you know, this notion that we can just kind of shrug it off and let the Chinese take Taiwan and that the Chinese will be satisfied with taking Taiwan. Well, that runs a counter to recent history. China has, even without having Taiwan, look at what they're doing in the Solomon Islands. Look at what they're doing in Kiribati. Look at what they're doing in, in India. What India now is accusing China of breaking the agreement over Ladakh province, which could spark a major war between China and India over northern India's border. Look at what China did, for God's sakes, with COVID-19. It came from a lab. Mm -hmm. This is what Biohack, my next book, is all about, coming out May 16th. I have the evidence. I have the proof. Okay? They, They launched a biological weapon at the West. That is what they did, and they did it with a very specific point. Not to kill everybody. It was designed to set America's economy back and to remove Donald Trump as an impediment to their agenda. And it worked like a charm. Okay, and and I I cite this in the book about how Chinese military theorists in 2015 wrote a paper about using weaponized coronaviruses to fundamentally collapse a rival country's economy, medical system and political order. And that is what they did in 2020. So if they're willing to do that, then imagine what they would do after getting a victory in Taiwan and moving beyond that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. Got to push back. No, exactly right. Uh, If they think a stronger and a bigger China is a better thing than they and I don't live in the same world or universe for that matter. Brandon right. Weikert and I will be right back. 
Brandon J. Weikert is our guest, author of uh, several books, including Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life, and uh, senior editor at 1945.com, 1945.com. Brandon, one last point on this, and then we'll move over to some domestic stuff, but maybe this is a bridge to it, uh, or, a, or, a, or a, you know, uh, what's the word I want? Uh, whatever it is. <laughs> a seg. A segue. Thank you. <laughs> I appreciate it. Long day. Long day here. Uh, longer where you are. You know, for those elements that are very supportive of Donald Trump, those isolationist elements that are very supportive of Donald Trump uh, and, and love to tout his record, his record isn't what they're saying. No. Uh, uh, providing arms and boasting, as he did, to be the first president to provide arms to the Ukrainians, for example, is not what this new neo-isolationism would represent. Um, it, 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 bombing bombing airstrips in Syria is certainly not what this new isolationism would represent. Moving the embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem is certainly not what this new isolationism would represent. They kind of need to go outside the room and get the story straight, it seems to me. Right, right, right. And, um, you know, the issue also is the one unifying factor of, of Trump's original campaign. Remember, he said, quote, and I quote this in Biohack, he said, quote, China is raping America yeah. in 2016. Yeah. That was one of his first speeches on China that he ever gave. And it sent chills down the backs of every Chinese leader in Beijing. Yeah. And they knew that, oh, my God, if this guy gets elected, he's going to be a perennial thorn in our side. And he was. Um, even, when, even when Trump, I think, dropped the ball and made a deal with China over the trade in 2019, he still did a lot of damage to China. He still put the fear of God into China. And so this idea that Trump was a neo-isolationist yeah, it could doesn't not bear be farther yeah. from the truth. No, it doesn't no, bear he out. was a realist. He was not a neoconservative. And, you know, the paleocons will call anybody yes. a neocon yes. who they disagree with. Yes, they course. call me a neocon, and yeah. I'm the farthest thing from it. Yeah. So it just shows you, though, how crazed they are. <laughs> Excuse me, this idea that we can look the other way while China takes Taiwan, and then after they take Taiwan and they start going after Japan, and then they get Japan to do what they want, the, the, the paleocons are going to be saying to the, the rest of America, it's fine, don't worry about it. And then China will be on our back doorstop before we know it, and they're still going to be saying, oh, don't worry about it, it's fine. And you know who else is going to be agreeing with them? The far left. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> that's exactly right. And the far left, because they actually agree with what's going on in China. Now, I do well, understand... fellow Yes, exactly. Now, now I do understand a certain sentiment, which is, uh, you know, we do have other important issues to deal with here. If we had a unified theory of of ideology in this country, we'd be working on the Maoism that's instantiated inside the United States of America. And I appreciate that. I, I, I very much do. But it seems to me, in certain respects, it's easier to defend a foreign nation militarily and strategically than it is to ideologically reform, I don't know, a growing percent, 30, 35 percent of our political youth. I, I, you know, I, maybe you take the point, maybe you disagree with it, but we do have this growing fascination with communism here and not only fascination, but uh, admiration. And, and I, I, that, that really should be our first task. But in the meantime, those that are about to live under its boot and know what it's like to live under its boot 
might might be worth saving from that boot. Yeah. Well, and furthermore, we have to remember that many of these far left ideologies and movements in the in the United States and throughout the West are actually being secretly funded partly by the Chinese. Of course, that they want this. And this is, you know, a fifth column uh, of yep. sorts yep. that they're supporting. Yep. Um, remember, during the race riots, uh, the George Floyd riots that plagued our country in 2020, Houston consulate, the Chinese consulate in Houston was shut down by U.S. authorities because it turned out they were actually giving money to Antifa and they were actually sending uh, agents of influence from the consulate into the crowds of race rioters to agitate them to be more violent. And so, uh, and that's an explicit example. There was a lot more covert examples that we've determined. Oh, I'll give you the NBA right now. I mean, a a coach could not, could not say stand with the people of Hong Kong. Could not say, let me take a quick break and come back, Brandon. This was a short segment. We'll come back with a longer, longer one. Brandon Weikert is our guest. He is the author of Winning Space, The Shadow War, and biohacked China's race to control life. The Shadow War is about Iran's quest for supremacy. It's another country we better get right to. Brandon Weikert and I will be right back. Brandon J. Weikert is our guest. His Twitter feed, at We the Brandon. His books, Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, The Shadow War, Ron's Quest for Supremacy, and Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life. He, um, he, he writes an awful lot contemporaneously, too, over at 1945.com, which is a great website. And I want to turn to that, Brandon, if I can. Because any of this conversation we have about protecting allies or thwarting uh, enemies, it really does depend on American leadership. Um, More than anything, it depends on who our leader is. I mean, a good leader truly uh, doesn't have to ever launch a missile or or do anything other than, you know, what Donald Trump and Ronald Reagan did, which was stave off our enemies without firing a shot for the most part. Um. We've got an interesting series of polls. We've got a president who the American people are waking up to in large numbers. You wrote about this at 1945. Something is seriously wrong with President Biden. Seems like people in this latest Washington Post poll are waking up to that issue. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we you know, I've been tracking these polls for a while. You know, I've been very pessimistic about Trump's chances at reelection. But there does seem to be a slow pivot. Yep. Uh, coming now, so maybe maybe this is the window that we that Trump needs to exploit um, because DeSantis and you know I'm a DeSantis guy, but yeah. DeSantis really hasn't done anything so far in terms of his his election. You know, it's or, just feeling a little like Scott Walker. I got to tell you, it is. It's just feeling a little bit like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and who knows? Maybe you know. Maybe once he officially announces, it all changes. But yeah. you know, he's given Trump a lot of a lot of lead time to garner support from the Republican voter uh, that should have he should have been contesting a lot earlier. So, you know, it looks like Trump's probably going to be the nominee at this point. Um, and these polls now are coming out indicating that not only is Trump popular overwhelmingly with Republican voters, but he's now an average of seven points more popular with ordinary general election voters mm-hmm. uh, than he was in the previous mm-hmm. state of polls going back several years, which means which tells me uh, that people are getting tired of Biden. 
and they, and there and in that poll that you were mentioning, they they did ask the people they were polling, yep. you know, what exactly was it about Biden that was making them hesitate to want to vote for him? And the number one issue was his age, yeah. and the fact that all the age-related issues that they think are arising from Biden being so old, mm-hmm. mainly cognitive d- decline. Yeah. Um, and they don't have that same concern with Trump. Now, nope. Trump's only a few years younger than Biden. That's right. But Trump presents so much better yeah. in public. I, you know, he comes across, as, as I always say in my writing, he's a orange fireball. Yeah. But, but you know, that's, anger is different from uh, dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so the mad king versus the absent-minded king, yeah. uh, people are probably going to prefer the mad king because at least he's going to be cognitively aware of what's going on. He might be angry all the time, but he's going to be aware of what's going on. He's going to be competent enough to execute decisions. Um, you know, so, so if, if I'm looking at it from the Trump campaign perspective, I'm thinking that this is great because until the last couple of weeks, Biden looked like he was going to be coasting the reelection. I said this to you last week. Uh, if we looked at the polls up until a week ago, it really looked, and again, this is just one spate of polls, and so I, I need to see two or three rounds of this to really become convinced. Yeah. But, but it looks like uh, the Biden campaign was thinking it's going to be easy to, to basically do to Trump what they did in 2020, even without COVID lockdowns being in place. They're going to make it a referendum on Donald Trump's personality. It's going to become a popularity contest. And even though uh, Biden is not very popular, he comes across with independent and moderate voters as much more stable than Trump does. But now these new or polls did. are indicating... Yeah, or did, yes, yeah. Now yeah. these new polls are indicating that those moderate and independent voters are not as sanguine about Biden. Yeah. And it's not because they dislike him. It's because they think that he is cognitively impaired. And yeah. so that yeah. works in Trump's favor. Uh, yeah, I think that the old line attributed to Bin Laden, well, I think it is true, he said it, uh, has has a lot of merit. People would rather follow a strong horse than a weak horse. And I think that's true of this country as well. I just think Biden fooled enough people in 2020 to make make us think, and the media helped, that he was up to it. But Lincoln was right. I mean, you can fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. And after a while, they do wake up. And, and I think also, believe it or not, what's helped Trump is the fact that he's not on Twitter. I think oh, that that's has, interesting. That has helped. Yeah. Him. So whereas because <laughs> so those of us that read what he does write, it's not great, right? <laughs> right. right. Yeah. So, so 2016, yeah. Yeah. and I talked about this in 2016. I was writing at American Greatness. This 2016 Twitter was an unbelievable asset to Trump. Yeah. It allowed for him to go around and go above. Uh, the the media yep. establishment to get his message out. Yep. The problem was once he was the nominee and once he was president, he was wasting way too much time on Twitter and he was turning people off yep. because he wasn't using that incredible tool to just push policy. He was using it to get involved in these stupid spats and these stupid media things when he should have been focused on policy. But because he was taken out of Twitter uh, and he's not contractually, and my understanding is he's contractually not allowed to go back on Twitter as long as he's involved with True Social. Um, because he's not on Twitter, he's not generating the kind of mainstream media buzz yeah. that his tweets used to bu- generate. Yeah. And what that means is that actually when he does come out in public, he looks a lot more presidential. Interesting. He looks a lot more with it. That's and so, so because he's been taken out of that arena against his will, it's actually working in his favor. It's actually helping him. Whereas if he were on Twitter the way he was before now, 
he, I think, would, would not be as favored as he is now in these new polls. Again, though, we have to see what the next yeah. round of polling is going to show. Yeah. But it certainly is looking better for Trump now than it was a week ago, even. And, you know, the closer you get to an election, the more people start to pay attention. So if these trends persist in his, in his favor, you know, we'll be looking at maybe a Trump second term. Now, the question, though, Seth, is that's all well and good. Trump can win an election, but can he govern? And we saw four years of Trump, his first year and a half, if we're being generous, were pretty good. But then it was all downhill from there. So can he maintain that momentum coming out of a possible successful reelection campaign to one of successful governance? I don't know. Yeah, it's a question as to whether he learned from his mistakes or not, which is always a uh, scary question, quite frankly. For a 77-year-old, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is all of that. You know, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. No, it's, 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 it's a tough question. And there's also, you know, not a great history of second terms with any president of any no. party. It's a uh, little bit different, yeah, though, because yeah. he, he's, this is not a back-to-back. Back that's right. It's different. That's right. That's, that's, that helps in his favor, I think. And also helps in his favor that this was an ABC Washington Post poll. Yeah. And I know they say that these things are nonpartisan or nonbiased. That's the better word, nonbiased. But don't tell me that they don't twi- t- try and tweak these things as best they can towards the Agreed. point that they want. So, yeah, we'll have to see if it creates a pattern and becomes a certain kind of settled or conventional wisdom. Uh, but in the meantime, I'm just glad the American people are beginning to see the emperor has no clothes. Brandon Weikert, you're the best, man. Thanks for Thank always you, joining us and sharing your thoughts. Thank you. You betcha. Brandon Weikert, folks, at we the Brandon on Twitter. That'll take you to everything he does. I'll be back with a closing thought. You think about the economy, you think about this administration, we just had a talk, China, banks failing, stock market volatility, possible recession on the horizon. Our friends at Y-Refi have an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return, not correlated to any of that, not the stock market, not the Fed. It's an investment where you can turn your monthly income on or off, compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. There are no fees in this secure, collateralized portfolio that delivers an up to 10.25% fixed rate of return. Why Refi is local. I encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road in the 101. Great people. I've been there. And I can tell you, you will not be asked to sign anything. You won't get a sales pitch. And when you meet with the team there, you'll see why I like and trust them so much. And you can, too. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm where you can earn an up to 10.25% fixed rate of return. Check them out at investyrefi.com. That's invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888 888- Y refi 34. That's 888 Y refi 34. Um, I have, uh, yeah, I have often been, um, been uh, quoting to you of late Rudyard Kipling's poem uh, about the Dane Guild, and I think of that in the context of uh, China. But recently, a friend of mine, Steve, taught me about another poem called Thanksgiving 1956 by E.E. E. Cummings. Do you know it, David? A monstering horror swallows this unworld me by you as the god of our father's fathers bows to a witch that walks like a who. 
But the voice with a smile of democracy announces night and day, all poor little people that want to be free just trust in the USA. Suddenly, up rose Hungary, and she gave a terrible cry. No slaves on life shall murder me, for I will freely die. She cried so high, Thermopylae, heard her in Marathon, and all pre-human history, and finally, the UN. Be quiet, little Hungary, and do as you are bid. A good, kind bear is angry, we fear, for the quo pro quid. Uncle Sam shrugs his pretty pink shoulders, you know how, and he twitches a liberal titty and lisps, I'm busy now. So rah, 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 democracy. Let's all be as thankful as hell and bury the Statue of Liberty because it begins to smell. We had those concerns, rightly, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, about standing by our allies and just as importantly, thwarting communism. Jimmy Carter said we had an inordinate fear of communism. Right now, I'm not so sure our fear is ordinate enough. Until tomorrow, David Dahl, thank you. God bless you all. Class is dismissed. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.